take your Bibles this morning. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 15. This will actually be the concluding message uh, of our current series on Exodus, how God draws us in or draws us out to draw us in. And uh, last week, we saw how God miraculously delivered Israel from the Egyptians by parting the waters of the Red Sea. Of course, he led the people through, as the Bible says, on dry land, and then, of course, drowned Pharaoh's charioteers after his people had gotten safely to the other side. It was a, it was a great victory, and not just a great victory, it was, a, it was truly a miraculous event. I want you to just think with me for a moment what it would have been like for you uh, to see what the Israelites saw. I mean, we have a pretty clear picture of it, right? I mean, the description that the Bible gives us of what was going on here uh, is, is really pretty clear. Uh, to, to pass through the sea, through the ocean, uh, walls of water, no telling how tall on either side of us, dry land beneath our feet that was once covered by hundreds of feet of water, you know that there's a theory uh, that the Red Sea, which is also referred to or called the Sea of Reeds, was only a real shallow body of water, right? Maybe six inches. Uh, and that what happened on this day was that a strong wind just happened to come along and it, and it, and it blew the water back and, and created kind of a, uh, a patch of ground where the Israelites could, could get across without getting their feet too wet. Uh, and then somehow... Pharaoh's charioteers got bogged down in the mud, and that was really the extent uh, of the the day. Uh, There is a, uh, again, I've used this word from the pulpit a few times, a a, a really good biblical word. It's called hogwash. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that would have been even more miraculous, right, Johnny? If it was only six inches of water, he drowned Pharaoh's army in six inches of water. It was a miraculous event. It was a display of God's power, perhaps the the crowning display of God's power. He had certainly displayed his power in Egypt through all of the ten signs that he had done and then leading the people out of Egypt the way that he had told them to ask the Egyptians to to bless them uh, with with jewelry and, and provisions, which they did. And of course the scripture says, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. They left there with everything that they would need for their journey and really for their resettlement into the promised land. It was indeed a a, a miraculous event, something that you just don't see every day. And, uh, And what we are going to see is that after the Lord saved Israel that day, and that's what the the last couple of verses of, of, of chapter 14 tell us, Moses composed a song, and then he and the people of Israel sang that song to the Lord. Verse 31 of chapter 14 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So here's how they responded. So they feared the Lord. And again, that word feared speaks of a a reverential awe. They they stood in awe of the Lord. There was this, it it speaks of reverence, uh, respect, admiration. They were inspired by the Lord uh, as a result of what he had done. For them. And it says, and they believed in the Lord. 
There was a great spiritual thing that took place on this day as a result of all that God had done. So, the desire of Moses and really of all the people of Israel was to praise God for the salvation that they had just experienced. Uh, And they did that by singing. Uh, Singing has always been an essential aspect of worship, really since the beginning of time. Uh, We sing, and I know there's, especially of late, there's been all kinds of debate and discussion about singing in the church and how it ought to be done and what style of singing ought to be sung within the church. And, you know, uh, I don't know if that's always been a thing. Perhaps it has, but I know singing has always been a thing. Job 38.7 tells us that in response to, to God's creation, all right, when God completed the creation of the earth, all right, and all that was in it, Job 38.7 says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Singing has always been a part of worship and praise to God and his great deeds. And and here's the thing, church, this is what I, I hope you'll understand. God deserves our songs of praise. God deserves for us to sing his praises. I mean, we use that, that phrase today, right? We sing someone's praises. And, and often we're not talking about literally singing someone's praises. But when it comes to singing the praises of God, we should literally sing God's praises. I mean, songs and singing have been a part of, of worshiping God and, and a part of what the people of God have done throughout all time. Again, beginning at the creation, uh, my goodness, the, the, the middle book of your Bible, the, the Psalms, that's a song book, right? We refer to it as the Psalter. The, it is a book of 150 songs. That's what Psalms are. They're songs. They are lyrics written to be sung and accompanied by music. Some of them are short. I mean, <clears throat> one of our favorite songs in the Psalter is Psalm 23, right? Six verses, six verses. Uh, 119th Psalm is 176 verses. Wouldn't get played on many radio stations today. (laughs) Too long. And I say that just to say that the variety of songs is vast. It always has been. We should sing a variety of songs. We should sing. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this is what David sang. And we know, or we believe, David wrote these words that he then sang to the Lord, just as Moses wrote these words that he and the nation of Israel sang to the Lord. David said this, or sung this. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I've taken refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and you saved me from all my enemies. Man, there's a lot of repetition there, isn't there? You know, there are people in the church right now that think if there's too much repetition in a song, it's just not worth being sung. David sings for the very same reason that Moses sang. Because on that day, the Lord had delivered him from the hand of his enemies. 
You know, the truth is, according to Revelation 15, verses 2 and 3, this song of Moses that we're about to look at in Exodus chapter 15, we're going to sing that song in heaven. I mean, that's what John saw in the revelation that God gave him. This very song, the song of Moses being sung in heaven. And, and according to Revelation, the singing was accompanied by harps. I don't know how well you like harp music, but in heaven, they're singing this song accompanied by harps, and perhaps we will as well. Back in Exodus, this song was sung, or at least according to the last portion of this passage that we'll look at, accompanied by tambourines and dancing. That would, that would upset some people today, wouldn't it? God's people have always sung in praise to him. Songs have been written. And here's the thing. I think what this is really teaching us, what we really need to learn from all of this this morning, is that singing is something that all of us should do in response to the great things that God has done in our behalf. And, and maybe you might be sitting out there saying, saying you know, I, I'm not much of a singer. Well, have you ever considered writing a song? Jot down some words. Express your praise and thanks. Your inspiration, the, your, your standing in awe of God. Express that in words. People have been doing that, again, from the beginning of time. Perhaps we should do it as well. I also want you to notice, because so much of this song, you read this song and you think, well, they, they wrote this song about God. And they sang about God, but they didn't simply sing about God. The very first verse, chapter 15, says that they sang this song to the Lord. And you know, I believe it would make quite a difference in the way we sing and write songs if we always kept in mind that we are writing and singing to the Lord. Uh, so, with that, let me just read the first portion. Uh, maybe we'll just say the first stanza of this song. And we're going to kind of work our way through this. And I hope that we'll see some things that will be important for us uh, to know about singing. How we should worship the Lord through song. So Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and here's, here's the words of the song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his riders he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Notice the very personal nature of this song. And of course, most of the songs that we sang this morning, also very personal songs. Lots of personal pronouns, I guess is what I would say. Moses uses lots of them. I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. It's just full of personal pronouns. Moses was, was writing a song that was specific to him. Of course, it was also specific to all of the people who had experienced that deliverance along with Moses that day. And that's what our singing should be. 
Our singing should be an expression of our personal experience with God. And if you're a Christian today, you've had one. You've had a personal experience with God that is every bit as miraculous as the parting of the Red Sea. You know, we think that events like this, wow, man, if I could ever see something like that, if I could ever experience a miracle like that, it would change my life. Well, let me tell you, if the miracle of salvation hadn't changed your life, nothing will. So we have every reason to sing. As a matter of fact, the very first words, I will sing to the Lord. This is my God. I will praise him. Those, those I wills, they could be translated I must. In other words, Moses was expressing this compelling desire within him. In light of what God has done for me, in light of what I have seen today, in light of this deliverance that I have experienced, this Again, this glorious triumph that God has brought about in my behalf, i got to sing about it. That's what he's saying. I, I can't help myself. I, I must sing. You know, I think sometimes it's, that's not the motivation for us. Well, I guess we're going to have to sing again today. I must sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously as the horse and his rider. He's thrown into the sea. Moses is singing and, and, and writing about all that God has done for him. We ought to praise God through song for all that he's done for us. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to write a song, if you want to write lyrics, a poem, uh, whatever you call it, if you just want to sit down and write, man, we, could, we, could, we ought to be able to write about what God has done for us, right? We ought to be able to share uh, from this experience of salvation the glorious triumph that God has brought about in our lives. And again, like I said, this song was not just personal for Moses, but it was personal for all of the Israelites. They had all experienced this great and glorious triumph. They could all sing praises to the Lord for what he has done. Every Christian can sing, must sing salvation's song. Let me tell you, salvation and if the salvation that you've experienced hasn't put a song in your heart, I'm not sure that you've experienced the salvation that I have. Man, when these people stood on the other side of the Red Sea and they looked back, they were compelled to sing this personal song of triumph, this song of of salvation. And, and so, so not only was this a very personal song, but it was also a practical song. You know, one of the things that, that songs do for us, they teach us, right? Our songs should be theological. They ought to teach us things uh, about our God. Notice Moses here in verse 3, he describes 
God is a, a man of war. That's not too popular in our modern culture. It's not even very popular in our modern Christian culture. I mean, what are we to do with that? The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. When you think about what Moses was seeing, Moses saw the waters of the Red Sea part. He and a million Israelites, really more than a million, passed through the walls of that water on dry land to the other side. And then they stopped and they looked back and they saw the water close up. They saw the Red Sea swallow the charioteers sent in after them by Pharaoh. There's implication in the Bible that they actually saw the dead bodies of the soldiers and horses wash up on the shore. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord's a warrior. What that means, church, is this. God fights for his people. I I don't know about you, but I'm glad to know that God fights for me. God fights for his church. The church has always had powerful enemies. Here in Exodus, it was Egypt. Egypt was the most advanced, the most powerful civilization on the planet at this particular time in history. And it says, at the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up and then swallowed the enemies of the Lord. The end of verse 10 there, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Aren't you glad to know that God can handle whatever enemy comes against us? Aren't you glad to know that, that our, and, and let me tell you, you know, I, I can't help but think every time I read that verse, they sank like lead in the, in, the, in the mighty waters. You know what God sinks in the ocean of his forgetfulness? Our sins. When God saves us, our sins are cast into the sea of his forgetfulness. They sink like lead in God's mighty waters. So this song is a practical song. reminding the people, and of course the people that ultimately or that originally sang this song, they didn't need a reminder, they had just experienced this. But as I said, this song has now been sung throughout the ages. It's being sung in heaven according to John. We will sing this song in heaven. So for generations, this song has been a reminder to God's people, I'm going to fight for you. You're not in this alone. You don't have to face your enemies in your own strength, in your own power. I'm a man of war. Yahweh is my name. I'm going to fight for my people. God fights for his people. And what this is also saying, again, is that God fights against wickedness. Wickedness and sin, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, are destructive forces in the world, in the church. God wars against them. God wars against sin. This stanza is written about what God is doing. If that first stanza was about what God has done, this second stanza is about what God is doing. We can can just bring all this right into the present tense. This is what God is doing in our lives right now. Yes, 
It's written about what God did in the lives or what God was doing in the lives of the people of Israel 4,000 years ago. But so much of what Moses writes is what God is doing for us today. He says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Now let me just ask this question. Who are God's adversaries? The adversaries of God's people are God's adversaries. I said a minute ago, there are a lot of enemies in the world today. They hate the church. They hate the word of God. They hate the people of God. They're warring against us. In the greatness of God's majesty, he overthrows our adversaries. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, look, I'm going to build my church, right? And the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. We may have enemies. We may have adversaries. There may be a battle. But God's going to overthrow his adversaries. Psalm 106, verse 11 says it this way. Writing about this very event, the psalmist writes, And the waters covered their adversaries, their adversaries. Here God refers to his adversaries, or Moses refers to the adversaries of God. The psalmist says that God covered their adversaries, his people's adversaries. And he says, not one of them was left. There is not one adversary, not one enemy in your life that God will not stand and fight for you against. And we need to remember that. I, I think sometimes as a church, we look at our world and we look at the powers that be in our world and we think about guys like Putin and Russia and, and, and the, we think about the, the China and, and North uh, Korea and, and perhaps places in the Middle East and we think, man, there are some adversaries that are much more powerful than we are. And perhaps so. But they don't stand a chance against God. You blew with the wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in mighty waters. Church, we can always remember that not only has God done great things for us, God is doing great things for us. He wars against our enemies, and there is not one that can stand against him successfully. Then we get into another stanza here. This is a short one, just a couple of verses. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. This is not only personal song and a practical song. It's a, it's a portrayal song. In other words, Moses talks about what God has done. He talks about what God is doing. And then he talks about who God is or what God is like. Again, a wonderful thing to convey through the lyrics of a song. Who is like you, O Lord, 
among the gods. And of course, it's a rhetorical question, right? And the implied answer is no one. No one's like you. Who's, who's like you? And then Moses describes God. He, he speaks of him as being majestic in holiness. You know, I guess if there's one thing that, that might be consistently described as majestic in our world today, it's, it's mountains, right? Isn't that a, that's a typical word. When you, if, you, if you've ever seen a, a tall mountain peak, you might stand back and, and use that word, majestic. It rises above all the others or perhaps anything else. And that's the idea here. God rises above any holiness, any holy one. You could also say that he's majestic among the holy ones. In other words, there are angels and demons and spiritual powers and forces that work in our world today. Are any of them like God? No. God's majestic among the holy ones. He rises above all the rest. There's really none like him. He's awesome in glorious deeds. Of course, this was a glorious deed. And God has continued to do glorious deeds. He's doing glorious deeds right now. He's awesome. Whatever God does, that's what that, that, those words glorious deeds mean. Whatever he does is always good. It's always right. And, and then on, on top of being good and right, his deeds are awe-inspiring. They cause us to stand in wonder and amazement, astonished at what God has done. The fact that he could do something as grand or as glorious as he has done, and that he would do it for us. I mean, that's what we really ought to stand in awe of, church. I mean, God does the miraculous, does he not? I mean, he parted the waters. You really believe that he parted the waters of the Red Sea? I hope you do. He did. The miracles that are recorded for us in Scripture are real, real events, historic events. God did these things. And when we have the privilege of witnessing something like this, it ought to inspire awe in us. In other words, a, a, not, not simply awe in the event itself, but awe in the God who brought about the event. God's awesome that he would do such a thing. I mean, my goodness, if they had just stood on the side of the Red Sea where the army was coming up to to, to destroy them or to capture them and take them back into Egyptian slavery, if they would have just seen the Red Sea parted and then come back together, that would have been glorious enough. But that wasn't all. God did that in order to save them. God did it in their behalf. He did it for them. The awesome, glorious deeds that God does every day, He's doing for us. That's an amazing thought. It ought to inspire awe. Reverence, respect, commitment to God. Then Moses describes God as one who does wonders, doing wonders. Again, miracles, that's what he's talking about here. God's a miracle worker. And really what he's saying here, just as we sang a moment ago, that only God does true miracles. 
God's the miracle worker. He alone does what is truly wonderful. You know, we use that word wonderful all the time, don't we? Oh, did you have a good time last night? Ah, it was wonderful. God is the only one who can do anything that's truly wonderful. And he does. Doing wonders, wonders, wonderful things, miraculous things, glorious things, unexplainable things. Is there anyone like you, O oh Lord, among all of the things out there that people worship? No. You rise above them all. You were awesome. You do what no one else can do. That's what Moses and the people of Israel are singing about. And then finally this last passage. This stanza is, is, is a prophecy. It's a, it's a prophetic song. Look at verse 13. It says, you have, led your, by, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God's purpose in drawing the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage was to draw them into the promised land, right? Now, they weren't there yet, and we know because we know the end of the story that they're not going to get there for a long, long time. But Moses writes about it as if it's already happened. So he writes about what God has done. He writes about what God is doing. He writes about who God is or what God is like. And then finally, he writes about what God will do. And again, he writes about what God will do as if it has already been done. And we see that throughout Scripture. God's word is so certain. His promise is so assured that we can speak of the things that God will do as if they have already been done. That's how sure the promises and the purposes of God are for you. God's going to keep his promise, church. God's going to keep his promises that he makes. God's going to fulfill the purposes that he desires for you. God, according to the New Testament, has begun a work in you. And you know what? He's going to finish that work. He's going to bring it to completion. God's going to take us home to be with him in glory. You know, that's what's so interesting about Scripture. Over and over. Here's a perfect illustration of God's people in trouble. God comes to them in order to deliver them. We see that, that same scenario throughout the pages of the Bible. God's people in trouble, God comes to them. Of course, the great New Testament story of the gospel, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God comes to his people when they're in trouble. Over and over and over again, we read of God coming to his people. People. But ultimately, God's plan in coming to his people is that his people will ultimately live with him where he is. Take us to be with him. And isn't that what Jesus says in John 14? I'm going to come to you 
in order that where I am there you may be also. God graciously comes to us time and again to meet us in our need. But ultimately, God's plan is for us to go to be with him, to live where he lives, to dwell with him in his presence. That was the plan for the people of Israel. God had promised them a land, and he was going to take them there. And Moses writes as if he already had. And notice what what he writes about here. The peoples have heard, the people groups, the inhabitants of the land through which Israel was about to pass. Moses writes, they've heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, the Philistines, the just consistent enemy of Israel. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. The leaders of Moab are trembling. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This deliverance, this Red Sea Miracle had just taken place, but Moses already writes about the effect that that's going to have upon the people that will hinder God's purpose. He says, God's already taken care of that. They've heard and they're scared to death. They've seen, or they've heard what you've seen, and they're trembling. I'm preparing the way for you. Terrors and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arms, Moses says. And they are still as a stone till all your people pass by, O Lord. God was going to lead his people into the promised land, and there was nobody that was going to stop them. And all of these people groups, the Philistines, the Moabites, uh, the Canaanites, man, they, they were all more numerous than the Israelites and really more prepared for, for battle. But it didn't matter because God was going to accomplish his purpose. And the same thing is true for us. God delivered his people, Israel, from bondage. He brought them out of slavery in order to bring them in to freedom. That's what Moses writes in verse 17. Look at it. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary Oh, Lord, which your hands have established. Church, God has delivered us. And he has delivered us. He has brought us out of sin in order to free us to serve him on his mountain. And and we know that doesn't mean any literal mountain, any specific mountain. It just means the mountain of God, the place of God, the place that you've made for your abode. It's a sanctuary. It's a place of safety and Security, it's a place that God's own hands have established. And as he ends the song, it's a place where the Lord will reign forever and ever. This place that God will lead us to, has led us to, is a forever kind of place. You know, we live in a, live in a very transitory, temporal kind of place. Things come and go. People come and go. Times come and go. But God is forever. His reign is forever. The blessings that God bestows upon his people are are forever. This song tells us that that which will be is as certain as if it already is. So the question I'd ask you today is this. is, Is the song of Moses your song? Can you join with God's people in singing the song 
of salvation? Has God drawn you out of your sin in order to draw you in to His salvation? If He hasn't, then there's still time. Repent, the Bible says. Turn from your sin and receive Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. He's our deliverer, right? He's our deliverance. He will save you this morning. He will triumph gloriously in your life over your enemies, the greatest of which is sin. So come to the Lord. Sing the song of salvation. And church, let's never grow weary of singing salvation song. God deserves our praise.